What's the most important thing about you? In, in the wonderful book by A.W. Tozer, The Knowledge of the Holy, the first sentence of that book says, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So before we go any further this morning, what's the most important thing about you? In other words, what comes into your mind when you think about God? Take a minute. Close your eyes if you have to. What comes into your mind when you think about God? Okay, here's another question. When was the last time that God took your breath away, left you speechless? Have you ever stood in awe of God? I'll never forget when I left home for the first time. I was excited to leave California, and I was headed to go to school in Norman, Oklahoma. And I was also a nervous wreck. Right? So much unknown. No waves to surf. No In-N-Out burger. My dad and I made the long drive out. My dad's here today. But when we began looking at the map, we thought, oh, we have to stop at the Grand Canyon. Now, before this trip, God had already revealed himself to me through the gospel. I was headed to college as a baby Christian. But it was at the Grand Canyon that I stood in awe, like never before, at the grandeur of God. Who, who, who's ever been to the Grand Canyon? Wow, quite a few of us. Anyone leave that experience saying, oh yeah, I am awesome. <laughs> right? It, it's quite the opposite. I am so small. God is so powerful. If this is simply his creation, there is nothing that could compare to the creator himself, right? Our, our God is what theologians call transcendent. Basically means beyond comprehension, otherworldly. I remember standing out there on one ledge, too close for comfort for my scared of heights dad, but, but speechless by my awe-inspiring God. Have you ever encountered God in such a way that left you speechless, that, that took your breath away? Well, in the first two chapters of Exodus, we've seen a problem. Not only are, are the people of God in slavery to Egypt... But the bigger problem, the, the name of God is unknown. In Exodus chapter 3, we begin to see a solution taking place where God begins to reveal himself. And this process begins with the man Moses. Like my Grand Canyon experience, God is going to show Moses his transcendence, that he is other than that he is holy. But he's also going to reveal to Moses what theologians call imminence. This is his, his closeness, his nearness. 
For many of us, what comes into our minds when we think about God is either or. It's either his transcendence, his holiness, his power, or it's his eminence, his, his, his closeness, his nearness. I hope what we're going to see from our passage this morning is you can't have one without the other. And that a proper understanding of who God is leads us to an awe-inspiring worship and puts us on all-out mission. So if you would, would you open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. We'll just be going through verse 12 this morning. I'll start in verse 1. I'm reading out of the NIV. This is the word of God, church. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he, Moses, led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And quick ancient geography, just to know where we are, Exodus 3 is taking place in the Sinai Peninsula in Midian. Horeb is the region within the southern part of this peninsula. This mountain of God in Horeb is Mount Sinai itself. Back in chapter 2, if you remember, Moses flees for his life from Egypt. He heads to Midian, settles down, finds a wife, starts a family. But sometimes we we can easily jump from chapter 2 to chapter 3 in a narrative like this without understanding how much time has passed. Because, you know, for us in our devotion time, we read Exodus 2 yesterday. Exodus 3 is the next day. But in the book of Acts, Stephen actually tells us that 40 years has passed. 40 years before God shows up in Exodus 3. So so just imagine this ex-prince of Egypt is now a shepherd. The job that he would have most despised growing up. According to Egypt, this was the worst job. So the Lord has been silently humbling Moses for 40 long years as a shepherd in Midian. Because now at 80 years old, when most people are ready to start collecting seashells, God says, all right, Moses, now you're ready. Just as a quick application, don't despise the day of of small things. What maybe you can't see what the Lord is up to. Maybe it's a a season of, of, of singleness and you're longing for a spouse. Or you're entering into your retirement years and they aren't living up to the hype. Maybe it's a season with young kids and your days are long. You're wondering, what happened to my dreams? Or you're in a season of barrenness and you're just wondering, does God care? Maybe for you kids, you're in school, and for some of you, you're hating every moment, wondering why you have to do this. Whatever season you find yourself in, if you're a Christian, God is using the most mundane to the most difficult seasons to make you into who he wants you to be. For the Apostle Paul, it was years in Arabia 
after he became a Christian before he started his Gentile mission. For David, it was decades as a shepherd boy growing closer to God before he was called to be king. And for Moses, it's 40 years of humility in Midian. Moses does write in the book of Numbers that he was the most humble man on the face of the earth. Talk about a humble flex. Well, this type of character development did not happen while he was in his forever home with his forever job and his um, uh, huge entourage, but rather while while he was doing manual labor in the worst job as a nobody immigrant in Midian. And then Moses, after seeing every square inch of this land for 40 years as a shepherd, sees something he's never seen before. Look at verse 2. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. Could you imagine? I'm not exactly sure why the the, the NIV titles this section, Moses and the Burning Bush. For Moses, what is so strange about this scene is that the bush is not burning. This is why he draws closer to the bush. And and if if I know Moses, like I think I do, I'd imagine he'd pull out the AirPods and in, 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 in awe, start singing, this bush is on fire, (laughs) this bush is on fire, as as he walks closer to it. But seriously, all jokes aside, Moses is tripping out at this sacred scene. Let's keep reading. Verse 4, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush. Now, now no commentary made this remark, but as, as, our, gospel, as our gospel community was going through our, our observation time in the text a couple weeks back, Luke Horider noticed something interesting. Look at verse 4 again. When the Lord saw that Moses had gone over to look, God called him. Man, imagine if Moses hadn't gone over to look, Luke said. Again, in Exodus, here we see God's sovereignty and human agency working in tandem. As I was thinking about the the, the implication to Luke's observation, I couldn't help to be convicted by what Bobby Longmire brought up at men's uh, Bible study last week. Um, he, he, he brought up how, how often we are in such a hurry and, and what kind of opportunities we could be missing and we don't even know it. Like, I'm so bad at this. I, I've even read a book on this topic to help me, the, the ruthless elimination of hurry. But, but sadly, I didn't get too much out of it because I was listening to it on double speed while doing other things. <laughs> oh, oh, would we be a people in our hurried age, who would be present, seeing what God might be up to at any given moment. Let's see what happens with Moses. Middle of verse four, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, Moses. 
Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Up until this point in the Bible, the the angel of the Lord has only showed up three times. Once with Hagar, once with Abraham, and if you remember, he even wrestled uh, Jacob all night long. The, the, The angel of the Lord is the manifestation of God himself, what, what some theologians call a theophany, a pre-incarnate Christ. In, in this chapter, in verse 2, we've already been introduced for the first time to the name of God, Yahweh. And, and unlike the, the title of God, Elohim, that has been brought up, Yahweh invokes this covenant-keeping God who, who enters into relationships with his people. God is beginning to reveal to Moses himself. After God calls Moses from within the bush and Moses starts to draw close, what does God do? He he gives Moses the stiff arm. Actually, don't come any closer. Now, this is a theme that you'll see all throughout the Old Testament. Come close, but keep your distance. Why does God do this? Well, the answer is right in the middle of the text. Look at the middle of verse 5 again. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. In verse 6, God continues to reveal himself to Moses by using a phrase that was first brought up in Genesis. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. God is revealing himself as Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. But this God is anything but ordinary. End of verse 6, we see Moses' proper response as he stands barefoot. Quote, at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Now, why does God say, Come close, but keep your distance. Because God is holy. Moses, an imperfect sinner like us, is standing in the presence of God himself. Don't come any closer. Take your sandals off. Hide your face. Now, if we're honest, we, we don't like this version of God. Most of us don't. Now, now we may not wear a t-shirt like I've seen some folks wear in California that says, Jesus is my homeboy, but we can certainly carry that same attitude. We, we, we realize that we have access to God through Christ, and so we can quickly forget that this homeboy is holy. That theological term I brought up earlier, transcendence. God is above us. God is holy. If the holiness of God doesn't come into your mind when you think about God, then you may just have a made-up version of God. Like if I say I love my wife 
And then I begin to tell you about her, her blonde hair and her blue eyes and her love for corn on the cob and cold winters and scary movies. If you know anything about Holly, you would say, that is not your wife. <laughs> I just wonder how many of us have a view of God that doesn't align with who he actually is. I tremble even thinking about hearing the words, depart from me. I never knew you. For instance, John, the the beloved disciple, like if one guy, if one guy could call Jesus the homie, it was John. And here's how he describes Jesus in Revelation with fire in his eyes and a sword coming out of his mouth. The author of Hebrews tells Christians to worship God acceptably. How do we do that? With reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The homeboy is holy. And we must understand God not by making him to be who we want him to be, but by who he reveals himself to be. Moses has just encountered the one true and holy God. And so he takes off his sandals and hides his face. But we will continue to see from this story that that God, God is not only above us, but he is also among us. In verses 7 through 10, we have God's longest speech in Exodus thus far. Look at verse 7 and following. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, and now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Before we look at Moses' call from God, let's first quickly look at the heart of God. The NIV uses the word concerned. God is concerned about their suffering, which is true, but but a better translation for this Hebrew word would actually be knows. God knows their suffering. God is not cognitively aware of what is going on to Israel. He, in some sense, experiences it himself. His response to Israel's oppression, quote, so I have come down. I have come down to rescue them. I don't have time today to speak about God's heart for for justice. If if you didn't hear um, Mark's sermon a couple weeks ago, um, go listen to it. If you heard it, go listen to it again. God loves justice. God God hates injustice. And as, as we see here, he is also faithful to his covenant promises. But he also uses failures like Moses, who 40 years ago probably thought that he ruined his opportunity to save his people. I I wonder how many times Moses had replayed that scene over and over in his mind while he was out shepherding. 
But now as this bush is still on fire, God gives Moses the call. Go. 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 I'm sending you back to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt, out of slavery. Milk and honey is where you are headed, Moses, a.k.a. the good life. That is what I have in store for my people. And so with that call from from God himself, how does Moses receive it? Like mission impossible. Look at verse 11. But Moses said to God, who, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Who am I? Standing barefoot before this, this fire within a bush, Moses says, nah, God, you got the wrong one. I'm the ex-prince. I ain't welcome back to Pharaoh's house. I'm the murderer that Israel hasn't forgotten. I failed 40 years ago, God. Don't you remember? Can't you just let me die in peace? And how does God respond? Look at verse 12. And God said, I will be with you. Moses asked God, who am I? God responds, I will be with you. I'd imagine Moses was like, did you even hear my question? I mean, how would we respond to Moses if if, if we were God in this situation? It would have been easy in our self-esteem culture to say, dude, Moses, you are the perfect candidate. You were literally raised in the Egyptian court. You saw with your own eyes Israel's suffering. And now you've been building your own resume by protecting and providing for this flock of yours. You're the perfect guy. You got this, bro. You're awesome. You were made for this moment. Thankfully, we're not God. Like one commentator says, Moses does not need to have a higher self-esteem. He needs a greater sense of God's presence. God revealing himself in all his holiness to Moses in the midst of this fire left him speechless, hiding himself because the grandeur of God, his holiness, his transcendence. But in God's response to Moses' doubt, he shows Moses and us another dimension of who he is. God is near. God is among his people. God is both transcendent above us and he is also imminent among us. When God says to Moses, I will be with you, God is saying, your identity, Moses, is now tied to mine. I'm all you have, but guess what, Moses? I'm all you need. Let's go. We got some work to do, son. God goes on in verse 12 to say, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. God's like the the proof that I will use to redeem my people is that I will redeem my people. So, so God is calling his shot. He, he, he's saying, Moses, on this mountain, Mount Sinai, 
Mark my words. All of Israel will be here. No longer in bondage. And in fact, worshiping me. What a story. What a God. But in 2022, and as a participant of the new covenant, what now? Our our application this morning is twofold. Worship, which I think is obvious from this text, and mission. First, worship. God says that the, the reason I'm going to rescue Israel is so they will worship me on this mountain or serve me on this mountain. I hope you've seen from this story both the the transcendence and the eminence of God. That God is above all and that he is also among us. Some of us, when approaching God, we feel like Moses when he hides from God. This God is holy. Maybe like Moses, you feel a desire to draw near, but you also know deep down who you are what you've done. You can understand why God might say, come close, but keep your distance. And so that's what you've done. You've kept God at a distance. You find your right standing with him, but by trying to be a good person, doing some moral and religious rituals, or just by not thinking about him. But we need to think about God because the most important thing about us it's what comes into our mind when we think about him. What we are going to see all throughout the book of Exodus is this aspect. Draw near, but not too close. There's going to be an entire religious system put in place on this mountain, Mount Sinai, in coming chapters, designed to keep Israel in proper worship, yet at a distance. But for our passage this morning, God has promised Moses that he will use him to rescue Israel from slavery with the goal of worshiping God on this mountain. You still might be thinking, unless this translates to the the Rocky Mountains, what in the world does this mean for me? I'm glad you asked. Do you remember in the New Testament when the woman at the well is talking to Jesus about what mountain to worship on. Jesus in response in John 4 says this, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. A time is coming and now has come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. That the great deliverer Moses is only a shadow pointing us to the ultimate deliverer the ultimate deliverer, Jesus. Jesus, like Moses, takes the people of God out of slavery. But this is a a spiritual slavery. Slavery to sin, slavery to Satan, slavery to self. And Israel's whole sacrificial system, which we will see in the coming weeks, use the the blood of of animals and, and, and different rituals to enable God's people to draw near yet at a distance, an arm's length. Well, here's where it gets crazy. Remember the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ? 
Well, when the fullness of time eventually came, he, the Son of God, became man, incarnate. This transcendent God took on the form of a man to dwell among us. Emmanuel, literally, God with us. Talk about imminence. Jesus, the, the, the God-man, not only dwelt among us, but took our sin upon himself. The one who knew no sin, who, who Moses had to take his sandals off and hide his face when he entered his presence, became sin for you and for me. The Son of God, the, the second person of our triune God, who showed up to Moses in a flame within a little tree, for our sake, takes on humanity and dies upon a tree, drinking full the cup of God's wrath. And then Jesus defeats sin and death once and for all by rising from the dead. In the book of Hebrews, the, the same letter that tells us to worship God with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire, also says, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. It's no longer come close, but keep your distance, but rather because of your union with Christ, draw near with confidence. Draw near because the finished work of Christ, still with reverence and awe, God is still holy, but there's no more distance. The new covenant is so much better than the old. Through the spirit, Christ lives in us. We are literally the body of Christ. Though we don't see a bush on fire this morning, we can experience the presence of God on a whole nother level. In a very real sense, through faith in Christ, we are the bush. God lives in us. Let that sink in. Listen to the Apostle Paul when he says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Or, or do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Application, therefore, honor or glorify or worship God with your bodies. O-R-P, let us be a church who worships our awe-inspiring God. And as we enjoy God in worship, let us also join God in mission. It's not enough that we reach our send campaign goals. We pat ourselves on the back and say, cool, mission accomplished. God will show up again on another mountain in Matthew's gospel. And in this time, in his resurrected body with all of his disciples listening intently, says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. As we hear that call from our Lord, which is your call if you're a Christian, how easy is it like Moses to say, who am I? Really, God, you want to use me as a disciple maker? Who am I? But listen to how the great commission ends. 
Jesus responds to our doubts by saying, Behold, I will be with you, even to the end of the age. Let's respond to to our call as a disciple-making church with the confidence that God has united his identity to ours, that God truly is with us. Oh, let us be a church that enjoys our awe-inspiring God in worship and makes his name known to our neighbors and to the nations. Amen? Let me pray. Oh, Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you that you have called us to yourself. Thank you that no longer it is come close but keep a distance, but through Christ we are reconciled to the Father. The Spirit of God dwells in us. Lord, help us as a church to understand who we are so that we can live out who we are, that we can worship you, that we can treat one another not only as image bearers, but temples of God, that we would be on mission, set ablaze for your glory. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.